You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Amen. Hey, how's everyone doing? Okay, it's got to get a little better than that. You guys doing good? Yeah. Right? Okay, okay, okay. It's not a youth group, but like I, I get it. Yeah, it's great. I'm excited for youth group. That'll be really great. No one wanted to sit front row. This is the spit zone, apparently. Um, guys, it is good to be back. It is, I'm excited to get into this series. If you didn't grab a journal, you won't offend me if you run back right now and go grab one. Um, they're awesome. They're just, they're beautifully written. The art is great. It gives you a lot of margins for writing. It's really good. Um, so yeah, just kick off the, steer, the series. It's hard to always think through with such a robust book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew. It's hard to say, like, where do you start? Do you start with a bunch of facts, a lot of dates, a bunch of just, like, numbers and things? And as everyone, it just looks bored already. Like, we're, <laughs> we're, we're not going to do that. Please go buy a study Bible, and you can, you can look at that stuff. Um, the question, I, I like asking questions that kind of lead during, to different ways of thinking. So a question I ask myself is, like, okay, well, we can learn a bunch about the Gospels. We can learn a bunch about all that stuff, but... What if we didn't have it written down? What if we did not have the Gospel of Matthew, and yet we were told to believe in Jesus as Lord? You know, Jesus, what, what would have happened is we would have heard this, of this incredible life that this guy Jesus lived, kind of pretty unknown Jesus from kind of nowhere in Nazareth. Pretty, he, he was pretty famous, but what he was most famous for was dying a horrible death horrific death. And there were there's rumors that his body was never found, but no one would really know. And then there would just kind of be a little bit of a cult following. And if you're in, you're in. If you're out, you had no idea. And that would be it. His teachings might be remembered and like kind of put in the library among a lot of the sages and a lot of the wise sayings and that kind of thing. And some rumors would go around, but there's no actual testimony. There was no actual written way you could read and know about the Christ in a trustworthy way. So to start, just for the, for the fact of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit working through someone who, who knew Jesus intimately, was literate at that time, which is not everyone, to write down the testimony of Jesus' life, this is an incredible gift to the church. The fact that we, we not only have a Bible, but we have like cool printed journals specifically for books. Like that, I don't want that to get lost on us. In our day and age of information, it gets lost. Like we have the written testimony of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. God's great life-giving news for his people through the eyewitness testimony of the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew's goal is not a history lesson. He wants to show through all the appropriate channels and acceptable ways of testifying in, this, in his time that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God. Like, this is incredible for the church, but it was very dangerous threat to make, especially in Matthew's time. You see, if you follow the early church history after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, those who believe that Jesus was and is the Christ continue the mission that is so clearly stated at the end of the, this very gospel account. This is Matthew 28, 19 to 20. And Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And those who bought into this mission and claimed to follow Jesus called themselves Christians, literally meaning following the Christ or followers of the anointed one. And much of their early endeavors are all recorded in the, in the books of Acts, if you go and read that. But again, more people, they were not literate and still relied upon the oral tradition of what they were taught. So the apostles were going around taking the Great Commission seriously. But as Rome just kind of nonchalantly approved of Jesus' crucifixion, and as it was backed up by the Jerusalem Religious Council, this was a dangerous message to spread and a risky person to be associated with. So now for Matthew, for someone, again, literate in his time, to put this into writing as a testimony, to name names in his testimony, telling all their stories that happened behind closed doors for all who would read, to not just learn about Jesus, but to see what the Christians saw, that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God. So to start this series that we're going to be in for a while, I think two things are really important. First is for us to see Jesus with fresh eyes. That takes prayer. A lot of that takes prayer for God to re, rework our eyes to see him in a new light. Many of us have heard these stories before, the Christmas story, the baptism of Jesus, his miracles, his crucifixion, you could name it. But a lot of times, because when you hear something over and over again, year after year, you lose your awe of it. You lose the magnitude of it. It just becomes like, yeah, we already know that. Remember, many of Matthew's audience lived these stories. We are, we are just, we're just told about them. We have them written down, and we get to learn and kind of dissect it and all this kind of stuff. But a lot of the people who were actually there, they knew these moments more than we will ever, and yet God, through the Holy Spirit and the person of Matthew, saw fit to write things down in remembrance. And the second thing is this. Don't let this be the only time this week you engage with this gospel. Steep yourselves in it daily. Read ahead. Know the story well. The journals, your own scriptures, podcasts, whatever you want to do. Put yourself in the position to not just be retaught Jesus, but to re-know Jesus. Jesus. So our prayer would be that, it, that this, this series are just being steeped in this book would bring us to our knees in awe of and surrender to and in love with King Jesus. So let me pray for today, pray for the series, and then we'll dive into it, okay? Would you pray with me? God, I'm humbled to come before your word, Lord, that you wrote so long ago, but it is so powerful. It is your truth that never stops being true. God, thank you for Matthew. Thank you for the words written. Thank you for everyone here today, God, that we can come under you as Lord, that we can humble ourselves, and we're all going through so many things in life. We can come and we can bow our knee to you, and we know that you love us. God, let us see you with fresh eyes today and in the next weeks to come and months to come. Let, us, let our hearts be reworked into that new creation that you have for us, God. We give you this time. We thank you. We pray in your name. Amen. So as far as kind of cool taglines and purpose statements for Matthew, it could be like, you know, Matthew, come and follow me. Like, that's a cool one, right? 
Or from chapter 11, it could be like, Matthew, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? But for Matthew, his purpose is actually stated in the very first line of the book. This is Matthew 1.1. The book or scroll of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we're going to dive into all that in the weeks to come, and there's a lot in there just in that one sentence. But his purpose stated is this. This is an eyewitness experience written down for all to know and believe not just that Jesus lived, but that that very Jesus that lived from Nazareth was actually, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God. Matthew wants any readers to experience Jesus as Matthew experienced Jesus and to know who he is. And for Matthew, everything is proven by the numbers, by the facts. Okay, By vocation, Matthew was a tax collector. We're going to get into that in a second. But meaning, he's, he's very good with numbers. He's so good, in fact, that he could, as a tax collector, he could even manipulate the numbers and make things seem bigger or smaller than they appear, which again makes this so powerful, this gospel, and so intimately redeeming for Matthew because he's used to, as a tax collector, and again, we'll get into this, putting into writing falsehood for his own gain, and yet here in humility, he is writing an incredible, accurate, and true detail about the long-awaited Messiah which is really fascinating to think about. And today, I want to look a bit more into what, I, what I'm really compelled by to start this series is to actually look at the person and character of Matthew. I want to know who was, was Jesus to Matthew. We need to know who Matthew was. And at this point, Jesus definitely had a following when he interacts with Matthew, and this is in Matt, all the way to Matthew chapter 9. So Matthew doesn't include himself until chapter 9 in the gospel. As point, Jesus definitely <clears throat> had a following. He'd done many teachings, many miracles, many healings, but he wasn't at the point where anyone wanted to kind of take him out, right? He hadn't frustrated people that much. He was kind of just this sort of pseudo-popular rabbi that some weirdos were following, and People didn't know what to do with him. So this is what I'm compelled by, is to really get into who was Jesus to Matthew. So let's start here to kick off this series, Matthew chapter 9, verse verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. So unless you were confused, this wasn't like a fair where you actually want to go to the booths and play the games, right? You don't just hang out. If you were sitting at a tax booth, you were working the tax booth, okay? So who's Matthew? There's actually a ton, uh, not a ton, that we can know about Matthew. It's really fascinating. There's there's really not. There's not a ton of history about him. He doesn't let us know much about him, except for a few few key things which are interesting, or his personal life, but we, we do know his job. He's a tax collector, and we can surmise that he was a Jewish man, but in case that's kind of in dispute, how do you know that? Two other gospels in Luke and Mark have the same scene. I put them up there next to each other, Luke 5, 27. After this, he being Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And again in Mark, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. So many, many scholars believe this is the same scene. And you could believe there's also others that say like, no, it's a totally different person, you know. It's hard to say it's different 
when Levi also is the Hebrew word for Matthew, um, meaning gift of God. Now, I'm not saying that's why I was named Matthew. I'm not going to say that. Maybe you'll say that. I don't know. But so Levi, it's like a, being a very Jewish name, possibly ascending way long ago from the Levite tribe. Um, again, it's not confirmed, but it lets us know Matthew was a Jewish man, which is kind of all we get to know about him. But except knowing that then brings his vocation into much deeper meaning. So just like today, there were many jobs in ancient Israel and in what the ancient Israelite people got to do. Classically, we know there's farming, fishing, all sorts of trade, herdsmen, artisans, all sorts of stuff. And in terms of schooling, they had primary school and secondary school and so on. If schooling did not continue beyond primary school, then the Israelites would most likely go back to the trades with their family or they'd work in, in some sort of thing in, the, in this town or the city. But if schooling did continue beyond and they became some of the most educated, then, they, then some of them would become leaders in the Jerusalem temple as scribes or other, other ways. And a very, very special few would become rabbis themselves to turn and teach others to follow them as they followed God. So we aren't told much about how far Matthew got in his education, but based on him being a tax collector, he could read, he could write, he probably knew a few languages since the books were all kind of all over since he worked for Rome. There'd be some Latin, there'd be some Aramaic, be some Hebrew, possibly some Greek. And obviously he knew some arithmetic, right? He was in charge of the financial report. So he was, he was an educated guy. The issue doesn't come from Matthew's heritage or his pretty knowledgeable brain. It's what he decided to do with his skills, and that was be a tax collector, aka working for the empire of Rome. It's never too far from the mind of the Israelite, the promise to Abraham, that they would be a great and numerous nation and be a blessing to all other nations. And yet here they are, a small kind of city-state, ruled and governed by this unstoppable force of the Roman Empire. Their pride was injured every day this life continued. And the facts were you either rebelled against Rome, you lived complacently and stopped caring, or you joined them. And Matthew, as a tax collector, had joined Rome. Now, people felt a certain way about tax collectors, especially the Jewish people. To paint a picture as way of an example, here's a passage where Jesus himself refers to tax collectors when he was teaching later on how, how addressing conflict among one another, especially when a fellow a Jew, a fellow Jew offended another one. This is Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. That's Jesus saying that, right? That's Jesus saying that. Like, because the tax collector, he, he, it's like as if he has rejected being an Israelite. He has rejected his people. Now, when we get to the passage, when we get to that passage, and we can exegete that like, I don't know, three years from now or something, we'll dive deep into it. But the point is the tax collectors were absolutely despised among the Jewish people. 
In the most important writings, Jewish writings of the Mishnah and the Talmud, there are writings of tax collectors being lumped together with thieves and murderers. So you guys get the picture, right? Painting this picture. So why is it so intense? And I, listen, this is a series kind of intro <clears throat> and kind of oversight and stuff, so I don't feel too bad about super nerding out with you guys, if that's okay with you. We are going to get to some specific passages. But this is a map I want you to see, just like the Roman Empire in conquering what was kind of the known world here. So if you look up there, so all of the kind of orangey red, that's all Rome. That's all Roman conquered territory. And you see down here on the little right, Judea, right here, well, Jerusalem is like a tiny little dot there. So you think about, when you think, when you think of like big, mighty, powerful Rome, and if someone was like, wait, you don't know Jesus of Nazareth? They'd be like, of course not. You know, like who, what is that? Like tiny little Jerusalem, but look at that. And it actually gets more. This is in 8 AD, so it gets more and more as time goes on. But I just wanted the picture of like how big Rome's mindset is, how big this is, and then how small Jerusalem is. And all of Matthew in that Judea, Syria, like all of Matthew is just right there. They go up and down, like all around in that area. So the Romans, they're all about conquering as much of the known world as possible. They don't care about little old Jerusalem. So how Rome would rule is they would appoint and set a ruler over each territory that answered to Rome and its governance, but allowed these temporary rulers to kind of govern as they saw fit. And as long as the areas paid taxes and honored Caesar, they, would be, they were being led well. So Herod the Great was appointed to handle the affairs of Palestine and impressed Rome so much that he was deemed the title client king, meaning he was basically an extension of Rome itself in his area. And this was about, I don't know, 30-ish years before Christ and a little right when he was about born. This lasted until Christ was born, and he's the Herod that we'll read in the weeks to come when Jesus was born. But by the time Jesus meets Matthew in chapter 9, the area is governed by his son, Herod Antipas. Okay, you guys with me a little bit? This Herod was despised among the Jews, and you'll see even more so as we get into the gospel and learn more about him. But he had the pride of who his father was, but none of the respect or renown. In fact, not only did the Jews hate him, but he asked that he also would get his dad's title of king, and Rome rejected it outright. So how is all this related, Matt? Well, I'm glad you asked. As Herod Antipas was Rome's governing leader over Judea, propping himself up to be ruler of all the Jewish people, all employees were his, and guess who worked for him? The tax collectors, okay? So Matthew, a Jew, was seen as a sellout because now he was in league with the very people who conquered them and was keeping them from the Abrahamic blessing of becoming their own massive nation that would be a blessing to all. They, we see it being small. They felt small. And yet they knew God promised to their father, Abraham, that they would be a great nation. So for tax collectors... Is, as is natural, the morals and standards of head leadership trickle down to the working man. Herod's way of gaining and keeping power was sketchy at best, and that's how tax collectors worked. Not only would tax collectors show in their books what the Romans were asking for taxes and then enforce that 
with their fellow Jews, but they had the power and lack of morals to inflate the numbers, pay Rome what they were due, and then pocket the rest, thus kind of betraying their fellow Jews and making for themselves comfy little lives. We aren't specifically told Matthew was this way, but all he clarifies is he was a tax collector with no other qualifiers, so we can make some educated assumptions. So let's get to it. Chapter 9, we get a little insight into Matthew, his life, how he's perceived by the general populace, and also what kind of man he is. So let's see this. Chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So first off, I just, again, Jesus is incredible, right? He's walking around. Rumors are begun about him. He's been teaching. He's been working miracles. He's done a bunch of good stuff. It'll get into, but he doesn't just recruit from the temple courts or like the good people or the educated people, right? He walks by this guy, this tax collector, and I imagine all the other disciples, if they were on one side of the street, they were kind of given like a wide berth, like let's not go there, and Jesus just beelines it to this tax booth, right? And he not only talks to him, but he says, hey, you who are not one of us, come and be one of us. That's incredible. What's arguably more incredible, which is weird to say about Jesus, but is Matthew saying yes, right? Do you know how, like that moment, that powerful moment, it tells me a bit that Matthew maybe had some inklings of like, this is not who I want to be. It's a little subjective, but, but you think about Matthew had everything Rome valued, money, status, powerful position, a future of potential growth. If he did well, think of the jobs he could get. But something about this man, Jesus, halted all of that. Maybe he was sick of how he felt every day. Maybe he was tired of the demands of tax collecting, or maybe he was just compelled by the Son of God to something so much greater than himself. And Matthew wants us to know what happens later on. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, which many scholars believe this is Matthew's house, so kind of like the, the Zacchaeus story in Luke, it's like he, Jesus called Matthew and he said, all right, cool, we're going to throw a party and hospi hospitality-wise bring you into our home. So reclined at table in the house and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. What a scene. So not only does Matthew put himself in as a tax collector, he says that later on Jesus actually goes to his house with all of his friends who were lumped together as just tax collectors and sinners. Like, can you imagine the scene? We don't really understand the gravity of ceremonial uncleanliness or cleanliness in ancient Judea, but this was a massive no-no for anyone who wanted to be declared clean or righteous of any kind. Like, eating with sinners puts them in danger of being unclean because everything these ceremoniously unclean people did was a defilement of some kind. That was the belief. Jesus not only goes in himself, which is a rabbinical no-no, but he brings his disciples not to a spiritual retreat in the woods, not to the beach or skipping rocks on the Jordan River. He brings them to the mission field. He brings them to the house of someone that they were taught to never darken the doors of. 
to avoid like the plague. The text doesn't say the disciples rebelled against this, but some did, and that was the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time. Not only were they the most righteous, but they were, they were doubly strict with those who would not follow their customs, the Jewish, Jewish law ones and also the ones that they added for their own zeal. So verse 11, so when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Interestingly, they don't question Jesus. They question his disciples, right? Isn't that fascinating? Jesus wasn't a threat to them yet. They were just flabbergasted. Why would this man have so many followers? Not only should these lowly fishermen and nobodies not be considered for discipleship because they did not go through the proper channels, but if they were going to fall, if they were going to follow anyone, shouldn't it be us? Like the Pharisees are the bomb, right? That was the t-shirt they wore. And if you thought desiring to have followers on Instagram was like a human phenomenon now, like it's been going on a quite a while, right? This is actually a huge moment Matthew is letting us in on. This isn't just like a, theologi- a good theology pa- passage. Matthew, a former tax collector, along with his current tax collecting buddies and sinners, all sitting there, and all of a sudden, this ominous judgment comes over them. Some of the most feared and respected men in all of Jerusalem are looking at them all with disgust, not even addressing Jesus, but looking at these disciple hopefuls who probably had dissuaded any thoughts of getting back into schooling or high society or being educated or even being worthy of service to God in his great temple. They had picked this rabbi Jesus. They had picked this Jesus to leave everything and follow, and now they were stuck. Now what are they going to say? But this is what I just love about Jesus. Before the disciples could even answer, Jesus says this, verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus' defense of his followers is something unexpected. Jesus doesn't just like save face in front of of the religious rulers and he stand up and he's like, oh yeah, I was framed, you know, like what are we doing, you know? He not only defends his disciples, but all those in the room. Not condoning a sinful lifestyle, note that, but solidifying what was prophesied over him even from his birth. This was prophesied in Matthew chapter 1 to Joseph about the baby his betrothed Mary was carrying. This is Matthew 121. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What those people in that room needed was not judgment. They already got plenty of that. They were very aware of their place within that culture, and that's what made them perfect for Jesus, because the only thing they needed then was a savior. They didn't need to be accepted by the Jews. They didn't need a career from Rome. They, did, they needed to be saved from their sins. And there was only one who could do that, the true Messiah, the Christ, the one they had been waiting for. What's fascinating is Jesus's use of physician, because it works here in two contexts. First is literal. Of course, those who are well or better yet 
better yet, think they are well, have no need to seek a doctor or a physician, right? So Jesus is speaking to the very nature that these tax collectors and sinners are actually in a better place to seek help than the Pharisees standing over them who deem themselves clean and maybe even perfect, right? But the second is this. Nothing Jesus says is unintentional, right? Using the phrase physician actually triggers what the Pharisees know, which are an ancient name of God. This is super rad. So the Pharisees, you think about it, they're highly educated men, and I would argue, and I think it's very arguable, that Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived. Both steeped in Jewish history, especially when it contains anything about Moses and ancient Israel. And real quick, journey with me. After God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, they were wandering the desert for three days, tired and thirsty. Okay? They came to a pool of water, and though it looked good, the water was undrinkable, for it was bitter. Naturally, the people grumbled and were frustrated, okay? And so the Lord shows Moses a log or this small tree to throw into the water, and suddenly it was drinkable. That's a sermon worth in its own time, right? But the Lord says this afterward, Exodus 15. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, I am the Lord, your healer. This was a very specific phrase taken and put as a name of God. So the name here is Jehovah Rapha. Have you guys ever heard that before? Jehovah Rapha? One of the names of God, it literally means the Lord who heals. There's these ancient names that you utter this and you just know exactly who you're talking about. You know exactly what passage it comes from. And the Pharisees knew this, or at least it would trigger them to think of this and say, why is Jesus talking about that? Jesus is subtle here, but he's not pulling any punches. And listen, if they or us sitting here today are like, I don't know about that one. I don't know if they would go there, whatever. Let me just read to you. I didn't put it up on the slide, but let me read to you what happened right before the scene we're talking about. Okay, right before this scene. This is chapter 9, 2 through 7. And behold, some people brought to him, being Jesus, a paralytic, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their heart thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Mind-blowing. This happened right before Jesus uses these words, right? Only God can forgive sins and heal the heart. So Jesus' play on physician is so brilliant here because he does heal very real bodily ailments, as was just exampled. But a point of all of that isn't just to work miracles. It's to bring wholeness that culminates in the, in the forgiveness of sins, a.k.a. healing on a soul level. Hinting that this isn't just a rabbinical issue between Jesus and the Pharisees. This is a God is here with us in our midst 
revealed in real time in the person of Jesus. And we're going to get into so much more of that in the months to come. But to capitalize while the Pharisees are figuring out what to say next, Jesus continues. And to be honest, I love his snarkiness. Jesus throws in these snarkiness. Do you remember what they, they, called, they called him? They said, why does your teacher eat with sinners? So Jesus, oh, you call me teacher. Okay. Well, thir- verse 13, go and learn what this means then. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's like a rabbinical haymaker, just like right there. Not only does Jesus dig in a bit because the Pharisees pride themselves on knowledge of the scriptures, so for Jesus to say, go and learn, is like a huge slap in the face. But he quotes a pretty well-known passage in Hosea. So I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is a pretty well-known passage from Hosea. However, it's not what he quotes, it's what he doesn't quote in that same passage that's the haymaker. So one of the main points of this Hosea passage here is God is speaking through the prophet Hosea to actually talk about the unfaithfulness and corruption of his people, especially those in leadership. And this is represented by the names Ephraim and Judah, meaning all of Israel and its spiritual leaders. So let me, that's the last verse of of Hosea. Let me read you the few verses before. So this is Hosea 6, 4 through 6. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have honed them by my prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings." See, like the, what he paints the picture here isn't just a cool theological statement. He's saying, like, you're not getting it, guys. You're leading the people, but you're missing the heart of God. The heart of God has always desired true faith rather than just sacrifices, empty sacrifices. Sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice means nothing, which is what, especially later on, Jesus will accuse the Pharisees of doing with all their added rules and regulations. But the point of all the sacrifices and everything should be leading to and growing a heart of steadfast love. That's what God's people were made to be and to do. See, Jesus is here teaching the Pharisees to look in a mirror before they go around judging because even their pious cleanliness is empty actions which are worthless in God's eyes. Jesus is incredible, and that right there in that scene, that is the Jesus that Matthew is looking up at and remembering as he's telling these Pharisees this and defending him. See, here's what I want to to know to end. What Matthew wants us to know and what what I want us to not forget this whole series is Matthew, he knew Jesus. He believes Jesus is the resurrected Lord. He lived as a follower of Jesus for years. He was even used in copying down and writing for Christians all over the world and for us today the good news about who Jesus is. But he still wants us to remember his status before the Lord. He wants us to remember not Matthew, disciple of Jesus, not Matthew, gospel writer or apostle sent on a glorious mission of spreading the gospel, He wants us to remember Matthew, the tax collector. He wants us to remember that scene there, a sinner in need 
of a Savior. And that that Savior, the one and only Savior, is the Jesus Christ he knew and is writing about. This is the state that we need to place ourselves when we read this gospel. We cannot forget that on a daily basis, we are also sinners in need of a Savior. We can't come to this gospel with a know-it-all mindset. Otherwise, we're no better than the Pharisees. And they see Jesus and, does, and doesn't do what he, what, and he doesn't do what they think he should do. Because here's the mindset we need to be in. We're no better than the Pharisees, and we're no worse than Matthew, the tax collector. Right? We are right where we need to be, aware of our sin, in need of a Savior. What did Jesus say? I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Are there any sinners here in the room? <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> point to your husband, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, next week we're going to start chapter 1 with Matthew, setting out to prove, as Matthew sets out to prove, Jesus was and is the Messiah by how he knows best to do so by the numbers. We're getting genealogy, baby. It's going to be great. And we're going to comb through it all. But our prayer, especially if you feel like you don't know Jesus very well, or you're skeptical about him, like, I don't know. He's got good teachings, but I don't know if he's Lord, right? To just meet him for the first time here in Matthew. Just have your heart and your mind open to who Jesus is as Matthew reveals him to us. Journey with us as we dive into this stuff. We get nerdy sometimes, but it's just so beautiful, to do this together in community and decide for yourself if this is Christ, the Jesus we read about is truly the Christ or not. We invite you on that journey. And if, you're, if you are a follower of Jesus here today, then we get to look at these scriptures with fresh eyes. That's so exciting. It's so fun, right? And respond in beautiful worship of the Christ, the Savior that came to be with us and to heal us.